welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And Annie, you know that today's episode was one that I researched for probably too many hours. And while there is so much happening in true crime recently, I feel like we're going to sort of set that aside for today because this is going to be a long podcast. But there is something that happened earlier this month that kind of got brought to my attention by one of my friends. So I wanted to point it out because this is something actually positive. And with today's case being such a dark one, I thought we should start it off on a lighter note. Absolutely. Give me all the sunshine and rainbows we can right now. Perfect. So whatever your political views are, this is something that we hopefully can all agree on, which right now in this United States that doesn't feel so united, it's nice to have something to agree on, right? (laughs) Totally. This month, Joe Biden signed the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act. There's, of course, a lot of legal mumble jumble, but I want to point out a couple really interesting parts of this bill. The Homicide Victims Families Rights Act, which is a mouthful, will allow for immediate family members to request a federal review of a cold case with the latest available technology. The new law requires federal law enforcement agencies to review a cold case upon written requests from a victim's immediate family. If the case is still cold after three years and has probative, which I just had to Google what that meant, (laughs) it means leads that actually could lead somewhere in my terms. The new legislation requires the federal government to inform family members of cold case victims of their right to do so. I really am interested in cold cases. This is huge. It truly is. So the other thing I found really interesting and had to dive in a little bit more, it specifically prohibits the previous investigators from leading the renewed investigation. And at first, this seemed a little bit odd to me. Why wouldn't they want to talk to the investigators who worked on the case and knew it closely? But Joseph, I believe it's pronounced Gia Salone, Gia Cologne. So sorry, names are hard for me. He is a professor at New York City's John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and he explained that unsolved cases clearly mean an additional risk of violence, especially if the perpetrators are serial killers or it's a gang or drug-related killing. He estimates that about 39% of homicides result in no arrest each year. He addressed this part of the bill specifically that stipulated that the previous investigators couldn't take lead on the investigation by saying, one of the things that I always want to talk about is don't read the reports right away. Don't talk to the detectives who did the case right away because you end up going down the same exact path they did. This law addresses just that. He concluded by saying, now I hope it's not a complete and total thing because I of course would want to talk to the case detectives eventually just not initially. This really makes sense to me, especially because we've seen in our research, sometimes investigators just by natural bias or by the initial evidence will really focus their attention on one suspect instead of allowing for other possibilities to be thoroughly investigated. So it really makes sense that if you want fresh eyes and you want the FBI involved in this, that it would make sense that you wouldn't want the same confirmation bias when you're reading their reports to navigate a new investigation. Agree. Investigators are humans as well. They let their emotions get involved in these cases, even though they try not to. I think they put a lot of pride into what they can give out, get out there. And so I think having fresh eyes is important because like you said, they're not biased towards one person. And also sometimes just a fresh set of eyes can reveal new things that people before maybe thought weren't a big deal or Maybe a lead comes in that kind of gets dismissed and this fresh set of eyes is going to kind of analyze every single thing. I am so excited for this. 
So how does this process work for the families? An Uncovered.com article explained the process like this. First, they submit a request after three years, meaning all leads have been examined and no identifiable suspect has been determined, a family member can request a full review of the case. Upon review of the case, a full investigation would take place to ensure that every component is investigated. This is including but not limited to a new detective being assigned to the case, re-interviewing all people of interest and witnesses, and this is what I think might be the most important, retesting all forensic evidence with current modern forensic technology. Oh my gosh. And it gets better. The National Institute of Justice will publish detailed statistics on cold cases organized by type of crime and agency. Looking forward, this information will allow law enforcement agencies to better identify crime trends and potential leads in maybe someone that's done something like this and has the same MO, you know, a pattern of these behaviors. Then lastly, at the federal level, law enforcement agencies will be required to provide Congress with annual reports on investigative trends to ensure that families are receiving the best possible review of their loved one's case. So there's not only a federal investigation, but if all of this continues to go the way they plan for this to go, they also have checks and balances in place. It's so good to hear this because I always look up cold cases and the families are always just begging, can someone please come forward? It's been 40 years and we, we have a burial plot ready, but there's no body. There's no closure. And I think this it, is going to at least give them some chance and some piece of hope, which uh, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what comes of it. Right. Me either. And I think we can all agree that this, like you said, it's a monumental step in hopefully providing justice to the victims, renewed hope for the families. But Annie. Can you guess what specific cold case, you know I don't cover them, but maybe you will in the future, but what specific cold case prompted this legislation? Was it John Bonet? No, that's a really good guess, but it was actually the 1991 yogurt shop murders. And I imagine anyone, like I said, probably cover this case at some point, but in summary, there was four young women who were brutally murdered in Austin, Texas at a frozen yogurt shop. During the investigation of the case, there was a lot of hurdles when trying to get the FBI's help in DNA profiling. And now, hopefully, there will be a brand new investigation with this new law and an answer not only to this case, but potentially thousands more. I have goosebumps, like the happy kind of goosebumps. I'm like smiling right now. And my Apple Watch is like calming your heart rate down. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I'm going to take your heart rate down. Because like I said, we're going to jump into this case. I know that I'm going to take that smile right off your face. You know I struggled pretty hard with this. I was texting you last night. I've been texting you throughout today. My poor friends and family are probably sick of hearing me talk about it because I would uncover something new. I felt like with every turn, which in this case, you you truly don't want to uncover anything new because just when you think it's bad, it truly gets worse. There are certain cases for me, whether it's the nature of the crime or especially the age of the victim, that just stick with me. And I first heard about this case years ago. We both consume quite a bit of true crime content. Uh So I don't want to say that any case is more special than the other, but for some reason, this case just really, really haunted me. And I think you'll know why as we go through it. I'm familiar with this case and it is horrible. Kudos to you for covering it, though, because we have to do the hard stuff. We can't just do the conspiracies and the paranormal. We have to do the hard ones and, and let that family know that that person's not forgotten. We're still thinking about them. They certainly are not. I want to start this episode, though, with a very strong trigger warning. 
Normally, we try to do specific trigger warnings for content and certain subject matter that is brought up, but because today's case has consistent discussion of every single one of the subjects we would normally give a trigger warning to, I really racked my brain to figure out what I could leave out, but I think because of the horror and injustice this girl went through, it would be another injustice to her story to not tell it fully. So please know going into today's episode that while this is, of course, a true crime podcast and every story we cover for the most part, except when we get to cover the more lighthearted stuff like conspiracies or the paranormal, almost every story we cover is difficult, but this one is especially heinous and will involve the ongoing torture and murder of a teenage girl at the hands of multiple perpetrators at every age level. I didn't choose this case for a shock and awe factor, although you might feel that as you listen to it. That is really not our purpose here on this podcast. We do not want to exploit the victim's stories, but instead celebrate their life, Mm -hmm. celebrate what they overcame in many of these circumstances. But I personally chose to cover this case because I think it's a really fascinating case study on I guess you could call it mob mentality when you have a lot of impressionable children that are put into a very abusive, coercive situation, but also because this case brings awareness that has led to a lot of changes in laws to help protect other children from similar abuse. If you are not in a place to hear this, I strongly, I cannot emphasize that enough, we encourage you to skip this episode. I am sure you will join us again for another case that's more suitable for you. I will give you a little teaser that I myself needed to step away during my research of this case, and my next episode will be one that doesn't even involve a murder, but a historical episode about how a corpse was used to trick perhaps one of the most horrific regimes in history. So I totally get it if you need to step away from this episode, because multiple times I too had to shift my focus and work on another episode just to be able to clear my head. So with all that said, let's dive into the story of Sylvia Likens. I have a lot of sources for today's case, and of course you can check them out on our blog, but the sources I relied on most heavily were the book The Indiana Torture Slain, Sylvia Likens' Torture and Death by John Dean, which is a very, very heavy read, but it almost makes you feel like you were in the room while all of this is happening. It is based mainly on fact, but he does add dialogue that who knows if it actually happened, but just makes the case seem more personal like you are there. Um, Again, careful with reading that one, but it is very well researched. The Sylvia Likens Wikipedia page as well as the Murderpedia.org page about Gertrude Benazowski. Benazowski. You know what? B. Let's just call her... Gertrude B. Yeah. I have a real trouble with her last name, and I don't have enough respect for her to learn how to pronounce it correctly. So, retweet, free tweet. Gertrude B. Sylvia Marie Likens was born on January 3rd, 1949. She was the middle child between two sets of fraternal twins. Daniel and Diana were her older siblings, about two years older than her, and Benny and Jenny, which, come on, that is the cutest set of names. Benny and Jenny. I kept thinking like Benny and the Jets. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> they were both about one year younger than Sylvia. Her parents were named Lester and Elizabeth or Betty Likens, as most people referred to her, 
and they were carnival workers. Lester and Betty were not performers at the circus. They weren't the ones swinging on the trapezes. They sold concessions like candy, beer, soda at the different carnival stands around Indiana. As you can imagine, and I'm not trying to put down the circus community, this was not the most financially profitable income, Mm -hmm. and their family really, really struggled. The Likens boys traveled with their parents, but often Sylvia and Jenny stayed with relatives, mainly their grandmothers so they could attend school, but also because there were concerns for the safety of young girls in this very transient lifestyle of circus life. Makes sense. Also, probably not very stable. You're bopping around from here to there, city to city. So I get why they would kind of want those two to be in a safe environment with some family and close friends. Sylvia had been described as a lovely, confident girl who had the nickname Cookie from her friends and family. When I read descriptions of her from those close to her, what stood out to me was how this girl almost seemed responsible beyond her years. I can say when I was 16, um, I was wildly self-involved. I was an absolute brat, especially to my parents. And Sylvia, on the other hand, had the interests of most teenage girls at the time. She loved the Beatles, hanging out with her friends, giggling over the attention from boys. But unlike many teenagers her age, Sylvia was quite selfless. She would work doing odd jobs like babysitting or ironing, often giving her mother part or even most of her wages that she earned. She was also incredibly protective over her younger sister, Jenny. Jenny had polio as a child that had left her with a noticeable limp, and she had to wear a metal leg brace. On several occasions, people remember Sylvia taking Jenny to a local skating rink and holding Jenny's hand, supporting her weight so that Jenny could experience skating on her good leg. Wow, what an awesome sister. Absolutely. I want you to take note of Sylvia's protectiveness over her sister Jenny as it might make some of what happens later in this story make more sense, but I can absolutely say for certain Sylvia was a fierce, almost maternal figure and protector over her younger sister. And remember, they are only a year apart. I was unsure of whether to include this, but she is so often described as such a confident girl, but Sylvia did have one known insecurity. She was missing her front tooth. In pictures of her, you will always see her with her mouth closed while she's smiling. Now, that's not the cutest part to me, although the image of that is pretty darn sweet. She lost her tooth roughhousing with her brother when she was younger, and somehow picturing this sweet girl with a missing tooth in her smile, I don't know, it just screams of the innocence of this girl, because I want you to remember throughout this case, this is indeed a girl. She is just 16 years old. Remember, times were really tough for this family. They had five mouths to feed on very little and often inconsistent income. So in July of 1965, their mother was arrested for shoplifting. They needed to get back on the road and make money because resorting to desperate measures like shoplifting obviously was not going to be beneficial in keeping their family together. Lester and Betty decided to head to the East Coast Carnival Circuit in hopes of getting more profits than they did when just hitting the local Indiana circuit. At the time, Sylvia and Jenny were both attending Arsenal Technical High School and had become friendly with Paula and Stephanie B. Obviously, with their parents and brothers headed back out on the road, they needed to find a place for the girls to stay, and in comes Gertrude, Paula and Stephanie's mother, to save the day offering to board Sylvia and Jenny in exchange for $20 a week. I looked up what that would be in today's money, and it was about $188. So not a bad income to feed two mouths. Right. Gertrude was supposed to be receiving that $20 weekly for their care. 
Gertrude promised Lester that she would care for his daughters like her own until they returned. You know I'm not one to blame anyone but the perpetrators of the crime, but there are so many instances where what happens later could have been stopped. But I don't want to chastise Lester and Betty too much for this decision. They were desperate people and trying to do right by their children, trying to keep them in school and protect them from life on the road. But I wish there had been some sort of way to vet Gertrude a bit more. It's not like you could just Google her or have some child services come in and inspect the home on your behalf. This is the 1960s, remember? And to the public, honestly, Gertrude would probably seem like a reasonable choice. She was a mother to seven children. She attended church regularly, supported herself with odd jobs. So I could see how from the outside you would look at this situation and think, what the hell are you doing? Don't leave your children with someone you barely know. But I think we need to take a step back from that mindset, and he probably thought that this was a safe and mutually beneficial deal. Gertrude would have some extra money coming in, and in return, the girls could live with their friends and keep attending school. And the end goal of this was for them to go and make more money for their family. They had their family front and center for them. It was just kind of the logistical piece that I think was hard for them because trying to figure out what to do with the kids while they're still in school give them a normal life, you know, a stable routine. That's a good point to kind of bring up and just for all of us to remember throughout this episode. And I do want to point out, they grew up in Lebanon and they are now in Indiana. So they don't have that grandmother to have control over the kids anymore because they are not currently in Lebanon, which I was very confused. I did not know Lebanon was also the name of a city. Had Lester done a little bit more thorough of an investigation or even an inspection of the home, he might have noticed that Gertrude only had bread and crackers in her pantry. Well, that and a shit ton of alcohol and cigarettes because, you know, priorities. And besides the living room, the house was filthy and did not even have a working stove to prepare warm meals for the kids. There was not even enough beds in the home for her current children. So how in the world was she going to take on two more? There were some warning flags. Yeah, I have a question for you. Since you've done so much research, do you feel like she was malicious from the very beginning or was she looking for extra income? Like, was this a planned out situation or was she kind of desperate for money and thought like, oh, we'll just just make it work because she'd made it work with her kids? No. Once I give you a little bit more about Gertrude's backstory, I have a philosophy on this case. Again, I am not a psychologist, but I have obviously looked into this case pretty heavily. So I have my opinion on why this might have happened, but I don't think she went into it with sinister intent. Got it. And I can promise you no one Lester and his wife included, you would have to be the most sadistic and sinister person to even imagine what would happen in that home could even be a possibility. So I just want to take the blame away from their parents. It seems very much like they were doing the best they could Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There's no reports of them being abusive. In fact, there's a lot of times where you'll see a very loving family being reunited throughout this story. Before I continue this story, it's time to give you a little backstory on Gertrude. Gertrude B, or Gertie as she was often called, but I don't think she deserves a nickname that's cute, so she is Gertrude. She was born Gertrude Van Fossen in 1929. We don't know a whole lot about her childhood, but it was reported that she was extremely close to her father, but her and her mother rarely, if ever, got along. 
Unfortunately, at the age of 11, Gertrude's father died in front of her of a sudden heart attack. Five years later, at the age of 16, Gertrude dropped out of school and married an 18-year-old boy. His name was John Banizowski. They had four children together. Their marriage was an incredibly abusive one. John would often beat his wife just for, quote-unquote, annoying him. Oh, gosh. And when they finally got divorced after 10 years of marriage, Gertrude was granted sole custody of the children. Less than a year after the divorce, Gertrude remarried. He divorced her after only three months of marriage because he was tired of having all these kids about. Like, buddy, you kind of knew what you were getting into, right? Right. She wasn't like, surprise, here's my kids. (laughs) So what does Gertrude do? She goes back to John They remarry and had two more children together before divorcing again seven years later. I need to stop here because this is where part of my theory comes in. I want you to remember the age she was, just 16, Uh when she started witnessing this abuse, being the victim of this abuse. And while I certainly do not have any sympathy for this woman, she went through a lot at a very pivotal age where most of us are just, you know, going to high school and worrying about who's on AOL Messenger and writing you back. Yeah. And we know from all these cases, what happens in your childhood has a direct impact on adulthood. Absolutely. Gertrude was 37 when she began a relationship with 23-year-old Dennis Wright. She was further abused in this relationship. Sadly, one such fight is suspected of even making her have a miscarriage, but she eventually did give birth to her seventh child. It's reported that while she had seven children in total, she also suffered six miscarriages. So not only has she gone through a tremendous amount of abuse by the hands of two, maybe even three people. We don't really know what happened with that three-month marriage, but the fact that the kids were annoying him and that was a reason to leave, I don't think he was probably the best man in the world either. No, no. Girl went through a lot. She went through a lot. So again, I don't have any sympathy for what she goes on to do, but I think it's important to give a backstory to any perpetrator and understanding of any potential warning signs that led up to what happens next. So shortly after the birth of her son, Dennis, well, he couldn't be bothered. She was now trying to support six children and an infant. Dennis did not make regular child support payments, so she relied on the very little income she made doing ironing and babysitting services. In a Murderpedia article about Gertrude, it was said about this time that she became chronically ill. She stopped taking care of herself and the upkeep and overall personal hygiene of herself and her home. She did suffer with asthma, but other than that, we're not quite sure what was going on. She also barely ate, which resulted in hair loss, sunken eyes, and a skeletal appearance. I would highly recommend, listeners, do not Google a picture of this woman. We will include one on Instagram. The reason I say that is I very quickly and accidentally stumbled upon pretty brutal crime scene photos that you can't really get away without seeing if you do a Google search of her name. So we will post one so that you can see her, but she looks... 20 years older than she was. I couldn't believe when they said she was 37. I mean, that's two years older than me. And if someone told me that she was my great aunt, I'd believe it. I mean, not her specifically. (laughs) She does look very old and weathered. That's a great way to put it. So now we have this desperate woman who has been through horrible, violent relationships from the age of 16, taking in two innocent children into her home. The first week or so of the girls living here, everything seemed pretty good. 
The girls got along for the most part with Paula and Stephanie, who were the closest in age to them. They attended church and hung out with the neighborhood kids. However, when the next week's payment of $20 was due and was not ever received, Gertrude took out her anger on Jenny and Sylvia. She yelled at them, excuse my language, I took care of you two bitches for nothing. She forced them to bend over with their pants and underwear down while beating their behinds. I am not going to use the word spanked here because whatever your opinion is on spanking, this was not that. They were naked in front of a relative stranger. They did not know her for more than a week. It is wildly inappropriate to do this. And it's not their fault. No, they cannot control the $20 coming in or not. And this beating was done, again, with their pants around their ankles, with a paddle. This was wrong. Agree. Shortly after this, Betty and Lester came to town to visit the girls. But unfortunately, and I would suspect that Gertrude probably had some say in this and threatened them to stay quiet, they never mentioned this beating to their parents. It was not long after this that Sylvia and Jenny went out to collect soda bottles. They exchanged these bottles for a little bit of money, and what do you think they did with it? Bought bubblegum, candy, maybe went to the movies, had a little girl's day. Exactly. They bought themselves some candy. Very innocent behavior coming from these girls. When they returned home with the candy, Gertrude accused them of stealing and again beat them in the same manner. I want you to keep in mind there is very little money for basic necessities in this house, so when Gertrude and her children and the Likens girls went to a church function, there was free food available, and Sylvia took advantage of it. However, when the Banaznewski children returned home and told their mother about how much Sylvia ate, this for some reason outraged Gertrude. Why would anyone be outraged at someone getting an extra turkey sandwich from church? It's called being resourceful. She was probably hungry. Exactly. It's said that she was upset that Sylvia would do something as outrageous as eating food. Yeah, I'm being sarcastic here. The girl was hungry, like we said. But she was mad because she thought it would ruin Sylvia's physical appearance. But if I were to guess, she was probably embarrassed that Sylvia would consume so much food in public since it might be seen as she was not providing enough at home, which she wasn't. Good point. Yeah, I mean, the churchgoers are probably like, this girl's under Gertrude's care and she's eating three sandwiches. Like, hmm, you know how, like, the hens are clucking. All the rumors get flying. So Gertrude then forced Sylvia to eat a hot dog that was piled high with condiments. At first, I read that and I thought, not not too bad. I don't know exactly what was on this hot dog, as different sources say different things, but it was piled high with condiments. A few sources said that there was a lot of salt on it, ketchup, mustard, all this stuff, but just in a massive excess that would create a very not fun taste and or texture. Whatever was on it, it was disgusting enough to make Sylvia vomit. Gertrude then forced Sylvia to scoop up the vomit and consume it. Oh my gosh. Oof. Again, Betty and Lester trip back to visit their girls. Like we said, I think this was a really loving family that just was in dire straits. Again, unfortunately, the girls said nothing about these incidents. No one is really quite sure what caused Gertrude to lose all sense of decency, if you could even remotely call her that before this. But in August of 1965, the abuse of Sylvia escalated dramatically. She apparently overheard Sylvia tell one of the girls that a boy had once felt her up. Gossip between teenage girls, right? 
they're 16 and 17. Like, I think this is kind of normal behavior, They're exploring. Gertrude. Okay, that could right. have been like a little butt grab. Yeah, leave it be. Right. Instead of treating it as such, however, Gertrude told her children that Sylvia was a prostitute and probably pregnant because she let boys touch her. That's horrible. That seems like a bit of a leap, Gertrude. She then, in front of all of her seven children, I guess the baby doesn't really count, Six children repeatedly kicked Sylvia in the private parts. When Sylvia tried to sit down on a chair after this attack, she shoved her to the ground and told her she was no longer fit to sit in chairs. And from then on, only allowed Sylvia to sit in a chair with permission. Otherwise, she was to sit on the floor, like the quote-unquote dirty girl she was. I know you talked about how it's a mob mentality. I know that plays a part just from what I've seen about the case. I know you're going to get into it, but not only does it hurt Sylvia, it's kind of embarrassing to have these kids who are your, who you're living with to go to school with you to watch that happen to her. Talk about taking some self-esteem and just taking it down like 10 notches. She's a teenager. It's like already kind of a rough time for everyone, right? Middle school and high school is hard. And then just to know that happened is just really sad. Well, to be disciplined, a normal amount of discipline, maybe your voice is raised, maybe you're getting scolded or chastised mm -hmm. in front of someone is embarrassing, but I think you're going to see that throughout this case, humiliation is a huge motivating factor for Gertrude because this continues. She is making sure her kids and everybody else is in on this. This incident specifically and the escalation of acts to follow have truly stumped professionals who have reviewed this case. And here's where we're going to get into their theories and a little bit of mine. Why would she respond so violently to a generally innocent conversation between teenage girls? Some have speculated that perhaps she saw Sylvia as this beautiful 16-year-old who had everything going for her. And because she herself had entered into an abusive marriage at 16, oh. which was Sylvia's age, mm -hmm. And it led to a life of unhappiness and uncertainty. Perhaps she took out her own self-loathing on Sylvia. Like she thought Sylvia kind of reflected how she saw in herself. That makes sense. Or was it a complete mental break from the stress of what she had been going through and trying to raise seven children on her own? No one really knows. I wish Gertrude was alive now. Only a little. So that there would be a psychological study on her, mainly so it could possibly prevent something like this from happening in the future. But yeah, no one can concretely point out what led to Gertrude participating and encouraging this torture of Sylvia. Both theories make sense to me. I mean, the jealousy or the mental break. Because something snapped. Oh, absolutely. Like, that's not normal. Did she ever abuse her, her own kids? Any reports of that? Um, it depends on what you would consider abuse at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think spanking was more normalized than a slap as far as like a disciplinary thing. But no but level never, of what she did to Sylvia. Oh, not even remotely. The first theory speaks the loudest to me because Jenny did not receive many of the same punishments as Sylvia did. Remember that Sylvia's younger sister? Yeah. In fact, after that initial beating, it seemed like Pretty much all the violence was directed towards Sylvia. Now, keep in mind, Jenny had a limp and a leg brace, and maybe to the outward public wouldn't be seen as captivating or charming as this outgoing girl with the missing front tooth who's spunky mm -hmm. and popular. And in Gertrude's mind, maybe she didn't see that as an accurate representation of herself like Sylvia seemed to be. Sylvia was a representation of the beauty and happiness that Gertrude lost. I don't know. 
I'm not a psychologist, but... You still always have a good insight into things like this. You really do. You like that part of the true crime genre, just what goes on inside someone's head. Well, I don't, I don't want to know what's going on in Gertrude's <laughs> head all that much because this lady is one of the absolute worst I've ever heard of. Jenny later said that in a possibly poor decision on their part, that her and Sylvia told some people at school that they had seen Paula and Stephanie having sex with boys in exchange for money. That seems like a kind of a wild lie to tell, but Gertrude was saying these things about Sylvia, and instead of making it about Sylvia, they chose to make it about the girls that they were living with and weren't helping them and were part of this abuse. So I'm not saying it's okay to go spread rumors and gossip, but... Let's give them a little benefit of the doubt. I imagine these girls felt incredibly powerless and just wanted to hurt those that were hurting them. Unfortunately, Stephanie's 15-year-old boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, heard these rumors being spread about his girlfriend, and he was angry. Not a normal level of anger, where like maybe now we'd write a bad text, mm-hmm. something regrettable that you apologize for later. He came to the house and beat Sylvia. Oh, my gosh. Gertrude then encouraged him to practice his judo, you know, karate, on Sylvia whenever he wanted to as part of her punishment for spreading lies. And Mr. Coy Hubbard started coming around the home often, and I mean almost every day, to do just that. Sylvia had a good friend at school named Anna Sisko. Gertrude told this young girl that Sylvia had told the boys in school that Anna's mother was a whore. This lady, 37 years old, is spreading lies and gossiping with teenagers. It's vile and so pathetic. I would say find friends your own age, but she probably couldn't because no one probably liked her. She sounds like an awful person. And she's becoming awful-er. Yeah, I'm making up a new word as the story progresses. So at this point, any friends she may have had previously probably were starting to distance themselves because it's just... It's weird behavior yeah. coming from Gertrude. She then brought Anna back to the house and legitimately encouraged and directed Anna to attack Sylvia again as punishment for Sylvia spreading these rumors that she never spread. And Anna did it. And Anna did it. She then did the same thing with one of her daughter Paula's friends, a girl named Judy Dyke. Her name will come up again later. She told Judy that she had spread all these horrible rumors about Judy's mother and prompted Judy to fight Sylvia. Judy refused, but Gertrude then hit Judy in the face until Judy agreed to punch Sylvia. So she's kind of egging her on, like, do this, do this. And Judy, you know, bless her, at least at the beginning, she's like, um, mm-hmm. no, this feels a bit extreme, Gertrude. And then Gertrude starts walloping on her creating that fear in her like, oh, I have to do this or this is going to continue to happen to me. Well, and that's my thing is I wonder why Judy wouldn't go tell her parents, but she probably was terrified. I mean, she sees what's going on under Gertrude's roof. And so she's probably just like, I'm going to turn my cheek. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she did tell her parents, but we'll come back to Judy in a little bit. Put a little pause on Judy. Yeah. Judy's in the corner for right now. With all of these beatings, you have to wonder how the hell did Anyone not notice this? Like you said, why aren't people talking? She had to have bruises. She is going to school. You think teachers are going to possibly see her, other classmates. Uh Well, Annie, people did freaking notice. In fact, people were explicitly told what was happening from the mouths of the perpetrators and did 
absolutely nothing. Case in point, the house next door was purchased that same August when all of this is starting to escalate by Phyllis and Raymond Vermillion. Now, I'm just going to say their last name seems to really fit. It's almost like it was written for this (laughs) because they are vermin in my eyes. They put together a barbecue to be neighborly, you know, and it was later said that they wanted to get to know Gertrude and their family because since she had so many children, she thought maybe Gertrude would be a good babysitter for her own kids. But during that barbecue, they noticed Sylvia had a black eye and Paula told them exactly how she got it. She had hit Sylvia so hard, in fact, that it had broken Paula's hand. Oh, my God. With Sylvia's <sighs> face. Oh. Then, in front of the Vermilions, Paula comes up to Sylvia with a glass of hot, and I'm talking steaming almost to the point of boiling hot water, and threw it into Sylvia's face. Did these people call the police or child services or report this at all? Nope. Nope. How? Nope. They just carried on their way. Then weeks later, Phyllis goes over to their home to borrow something. She's like, knock, knock, knock. May I have a cup of sugar? And here's Sylvia wandering around, as she described her, as incredibly dazed and zombie-like, with swollen lips and a black eye that had been swollen completely shut. Now, keep in mind, this is weeks later. So the likelihood of this being the same black eye, slim to none. Mm -hmm. When she asked what happened to Sylvia, Paula took her belt off and began to beat Sylvia in front of Phyllis. And again, Phyllis never reported this. I don't know if it was a time period thing where you were expected to mind your own business and not bother in other people's personal affairs. But in my book, you do nothing when you see a child being abused and you are just as bad as the one doing the abusing. Yeah. And what's so sad to me is Sylvia knew all these adults know and no one's helping me. I think that would just like crush someone's spirit. Paula is Gertrude's daughter, right? She was Sylvia's friend. Okay. Yes. At this point, obviously, they're not friendly right. anymore, but they started out on somewhat good terms until all these rumors about who's sleeping with who and whose mom's a prostitute. Mm-hmm. It's obviously not only causing trouble at home, but it's causing trouble at school because rumors spread like wildflower when you're you know, of that age. So they were very much no longer friends. Apparently, Sylvia was still going to school at this time, which begs again, how Did no one report that they saw a child with bruises and black eyes at the school? How many classes is she going to? Is she going out to recess? Is she going to lunch? There's so many interactions with an adult when you're at school. We'll get back to this, but Sylvia told Gertrude she needed a new sweatsuit for a gym class. But when Gertrude told her she couldn't afford it, Sylvia maybe did what we would all do to try to fit in, and she chose to steal one from the school. Gertrude questioned, how the hell did you end up with this gym outfit that I didn't buy for you? And Sylvia ended up confessing that she had taken one from the school. Gertrude decided to teach her a lesson by burning the tips of each of Sylvia's fingers with a lit cigarette and then whipping her with a belt. The other family members who smoked, which seemed really weird when I first wrote it and then I remembered what time we were in. So probably many of these teenagers in the home smoked. They also began putting cigarettes out on Sylvia at their discretion, saying the constant burns were a reminder for her not to steal again. She was backed into a corner. She needed a freaking gym suit. She's not asking for a new purse or new shoes. She's asking for a necessity probably. 
Yeah, because if I think back now, I don't think Greece is probably the most accurate description of what life in the 1950s <laughs> and 60s was like. But you had like a gym uniform. Yeah, I had one in elementary school and middle school. It was hor- it was very ugly, but you have to wear it if you want to be able to change from your school clothes, go to gym class, participate, and then come back and wear things that aren't smelly. So she probably really needed it. This is the only other time that is on record that we know about of Jenny again being abused. She, same thing, didn't have what she needed for gym class. She stole one tennis shoe. She only had one good leg, so she took one shoe. Unfortunately, she received not the same punishment, but that was the last time that we have a record of her being hit by Gertrude. I get that stealing's not right. I'm not saying it is, but there's ways to handle that, especially with teenagers. It certainly is not putting out lit cigarettes and continuing to do it over and over. There's a lot of teenagers in this house right now. So how many of them are smoking? How many of them are burning this poor girl whenever they feel so inclined? I'm speechless. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. At this point, Sylvia has been beaten numerous times, not only by Gertrude, but by the neighborhood kids, has multiple burns over her entire body, and in my opinion, since she was required to remove her underwear and pants for these beatings, often in front of others, was sexually humiliated. Like, how the hell can this get worse? Because this in of itself, if I stopped the episode here, I would be boiling. It's still hard. Like, I still need to go get a hug before I go to bed, and I feel like it's going to get worse. Yeah. It's just a grown-ass woman is lying to teenagers to coax them into retaliating against a 16-year-old girl, which is like, it's beyond go get your friends of your own age. It's like, grow the hell Mm -hmm. up and take responsibility for yourself. And if you can't, go get some help. I realize different time period, but Mm -hmm. it just, this case makes me so mad because there are so many instances where someone should have said something. The next part I have condensed because truly some parts of what happens to Sylvia are so deplorable that I do not feel comfortable speaking it out loud. There are things, like I said at the top of this episode, that I feel like have to be talked about. But if it happened more than once at this point, I am not going to go back and re-talk about every time it happened. So as terrible as this is of what I'm describing now, please know that if you look further into this case, it is exponentially worse (sighs) this soul is not this soul i don't have a soul anymore (laughs) what i was going to say is this case it just went right into my soul and tried to eat away all my faith in humanity so i just need to protect myself a little bit and like i said i will cover what happened to her but if it happened multiple times just know that in the back of your brain i don't need to go into detail about every single incident Sylvia and Jenny went out again to sell soda bottles for a little extra money. Of course, when she returned with the little money she rightfully earned, Gertrude accused her of stealing and then of being a prostitute. And that's how she got the money when Jenny backed her up and said, no, Sylvia wasn't stealing. This is how we earn the money. 
She then said, no, you sold yourself to boys. She then brought Sylvia into the living room in front of her sons and several of the neighborhood boys that she invited over and forced Sylvia to use one of those glass Coke bottles in a sexual act in front of the boys. Not only was this psychologically harmful, but Sylvia was injured pretty drastically from this event and became incontinent. For those that don't know what that means, because I was a little unsure. I don't know what it means. It means you can no longer control urination or your defecation. There was some damage done, and we're just going to leave it at that. Even though Gertrude was the one that caused this, she decided since Sylvia couldn't control herself, she would remove her from the bedroom she stayed in and put her in the basement. There was no restroom in this basement, so Sylvia was forced to basically live amongst her own feces and urine. Again, she couldn't control when she went to the bathroom after the sexual act that was committed on her, let's Mm -hmm. be honest. 100% on her. Gertrude would clean Sylvia, and I am using that term insanely loosely because what she was doing was actually this methodical torture that she called cleaning. She would fill up the bathtub with the hottest water possible, and while Sylvia's arms and legs were restrained, usually Gertrude and her eldest daughter Paula would dunk her in the scalding water, and then for God knows what reason, would legitimately pack salt into her wounds. I get a little squeamish when I have a paper cut and a lemon juice or a lime juice when I'm bartending gets into it. Now imagine that you've been beaten and you're being put in water that hot and then salt is getting into it. Like just when I think, okay, it can't get any worse. It gets worse. And also, what kind of sick mind thinks of this? And oftentimes this is a situation where later during this cleaning ritual, I'm putting that in quotes, Sylvia would often pass out. And instead of bringing her out of the water, they would just hit her until she regained consciousness because of the additional pain they inflicted. Gertrude called up 14-year-old neighborhood kid Ricky Hobbs to help her with Sylvia. This kid was an honor student, had no prior criminal activity, and by all accounts prior to this was a completely sweet very loved kid, 14 years old. But once Gertrude got a hold of him, all of that changed. It is like there was, like we said before, almost a mob mentality of sorts Mm -hmm. happening in this home. The abuse started with Gertrude, and when she was too weak to continue the torture, she somehow convinced these adolescents to join in. Now, maybe I can make a case for how if this was your mother, if Gertrude was your mom, and you are constantly witnessing this, you, at her instruction, may participate just out of fear for your own safety. Yeah. But how does that explain the neighborhood kids joining in and seemingly coming over repeatedly to take part in these beatings and torture over and over and over again? There has been speculation that Gertrude was sexually involved with Ricky, which I do not put past her. And although he never testified to this, I don't even think it came up in trial. It's more just speculation that this was a way of grooming him to go along with her demands and to manipulate him into taking part in the torture of Sylvia. But again, that is only speculation. He could have done this mainly out of his own free will, but he's a 14-year-old boy, so it definitely questions have to be asked there. Yeah, and... I'm like, why do the kids keep coming back over? 
I think I read an article saying that she would give them alcohol and cigarettes, wouldn't she? To kind of entice them to come over. Like she was the cool mom on the block. I'm using air quotes, but she was not cool. But she wanted to be that house of like, come do whatever you want. I won't tell your parents. We all had that house in high school, right? Where they're like, oh, we'd rather you drink here than drink somewhere else. I can make sure that you stay safe. But no, she was not safe. She was not a safe place to experiment. She was providing these kids drugs and alcohol. I shouldn't say drugs. She was providing them with at least alcohol and cigarettes. Uh-huh. So like you said, they thought it was the cool house. And then they're doing what they can to please this horrible witch of a woman. The two of them begin charging the neighborhood kids a nickel to come see Sylvia. She was no longer going to school. Obviously, at this point, she is not doing very well and was in such awful shape that it would raise some major questions if she walked into school looking like this. The neighborhood kids would come basically pay a nickel to gawk at her naked body or for the same fee could beat her or push her down the stairs for a nickel. I can't even imagine. I can't even fathom this. Even hearing it and knowing it actually happened, I don't even know what to say. Well, it's just, it's beyond reprehensible. It's just, it's not human. Mm-mm. That's the That's perfect way to we, put it. We don't have words for it. Is this kind of behavior is so far from what every society, mm-hmm. I would imagine, consider a moral code that you cannot process this. It, it's just, Awful, awful. I do want to interject here, though, that it it kind of raised some questions, at least for me, when I heard that neighborhood kids paying a fee. Um, Also, in certain of the movies I've seen depicted about this, while she went through a lot, it does not seem that she was vaginally penetrated by any of these neighborhood kids. I don't know. I don't even know if that saves any of this because it's still so bad. But But I know what you mean. It's a a little bit of decency i guess for her all this was happening but at least she had that one little piece of her that wasn't damaged by these other neighborhood kids i see what you mean by that gertrude and her 12 year old son 12 what were you doing at the age of 12 annie like trying to think like i think i was in sixth grade yeah i would have been in sixth grade I was probably thinking the boy named Daniel in my class was super cute and trying to pass him notes. Doing homework. And like playing kickball. Yeah, doing simple things in life as a 12-year-old should be doing. And dancing to like Britney Spears music videos. Free Britney. Anyway. Gertrude and her 12-year-old son would supervise Sylvia as she cleaned the basement. This is not Sylvia getting out a bucket and some soapy water. They called it cleaning the basement when they would force her to consume her excrements that she, again, could not control because of this torture, she was made to eat it. Oh. Here's where I texted you, Annie. Let's take a little pause because this is so heavy. You know me and my ADD. Mm -hmm. I get a little hyper-focused on things. I know her and I love her. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) So this led me into some real bizarre research. I had texted Annie and I was like, Oh, my God, if someone went through my Google history right now, I'd probably get arrested. Well, when I think of force feeding someone their excrements, I'm thinking that has to make you wildly sick. Like, obviously, it's just just gross. Mm -hmm. But I had to know what does it actually do? Because maybe that's just in my head. So what did I do? I started Googling it. So we're going to do a little medical sidebar here. Uh Not that this is in any way better, but I just need a break from 
from hearing about Sophia too. and what they did to her for a minute. Hit me with some medical stuff. I'm ready. According to a Business Insider article by Jean Kim and Jordan Bowman, depending on the environment, this is also good to know for survival. Depending on the environment, adult can survive up to a week without water and three weeks without food. But that window quickly narrows when you're dehydrated, sick, or both. Most places will say about three days without water. For that reason, the Army has a field manual which has a do not drink list for such an occasion, which includes any fish juices, which I found interesting, blood, alcohol, which we've all had a hangover, so we know that's not something you want to do if you want to stay hydrated, seawater, and urine. In fact, urine isn't that different from seawater. It's usually about 95% water mixed with byproducts including sodium, chloride, and urea. Seawater, by comparison, is about 96% water and 3.5% sodium and chloride salt. What's urea? Oh, I'll tell you. I really went into this. I was fascinated. Drinking urine is basically like drinking seawater. It's going to dehydrate you, which is obviously the opposite of what you want. To make matters worse, if you keep drinking it, the concentration of that builds up. Severe dehydration can trigger abnormally low blood pressure. Low blood pressure means less blood flow to vital organs like your heart, lungs, and kidneys, which can be damaged or fail as a result. All not good things. Add into that trouble is that urea word, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. I think that's just where we get the word urine because urea means waste. Okay, makes sense. It's just the things that are not supposed to be in your body. They are not serving you anymore. We are moving them out. Your kidneys filter out of your blood and into your urine, which ordinarily then leaves your system. Boom, bang, bang. Moving on with the day. But if you drink the urine instead, your kidneys have to work even harder to filter out that extra urea, which could also lead to kidney failure. Again, not good. Suffice to say, drinking urine may be your kidney's worst nightmare. And according to PrimalSurvivor.com article by Diane Vukovic, I believe it's pronounced, damaged muscle fibers leak potassium and phosphorus into the blood. Sylvia, we're going back to her for a minute clearly had a lot of damaged muscle fibers. The kidneys are also in charge of processing that Mm -hmm. and filtering that out. So the kidneys are already having a hard time clearing out the urea. Now they're going to have an even harder time clearing out potassium and phosphorus. So someone drinking urine who has gone through an accident or in her case, the things that have been going on to her, it would put even more strain on her body and especially on her kidneys, which could have led to kidney failure if she continued. Wow. I always thought if you were like stranded in the woods, you should drink your own pee. I always thought I that. I thought so too. I've seen like that show where they like cut off a rattlesnake's head and take out the bits and then he pees into it. Oh. That's an actual show. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I have not seen that. I have. And... I will try to find that clip for you because people probably think I'm lying. But it was on this survivalist show. And they're saying absolutely like if you have to, you do what you have to do. But that should be last resort. We need to talk about what happens if you eat feces. Buckle up. Listeners, you might want to put down your food a little bit. But a Healthline.com article by Rachel Nall, who is at MCNCRNA. 
And this article was medically reviewed by Deborah Rose Wilson, who has more initials after her last name than I knew was possible. So we're just going to shorten it a little bit. I know you went to a lot of school, Miss uh, Deborah, to get all of these, but I don't know what any of them mean besides PhD (laughs) (laughs) and RN. So you're doing great, Deborah. According to the Illinois Poison Center, eating poop is minimally toxic. That's shocking to me. Shocking. However, poop naturally contains the bacteria commonly found in your intestines. Where this bacteria doesn't generally harm you when it's inside of your intestines, unless it's in surplus, it's not meant to be ingested by the mouth. Examples of this bacteria that is commonly present in poop include E. coli, salmonella, and something called Shigella, which sounds like a dance of some sort. (laughs) These bacteria can cause you to experience symptoms as extreme bloating, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, and fever. Parasites and viruses like hepatitis A and hepatitis E are also transmitted via poop. I mean, don't eat poop. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm -mm. (laughs) And don't drink your pee. Don't Don't do either. I know that's probably more information than you ever wanted to know, but I'm actually kind of glad I got sidetracked on that because I was focused on the grossness of what they were doing, but I didn't really think about what this was doing inside of her body. And I did some research on why murderers would use this as a form of torture. It's commonly believed that something like force feeding their excrements to them is either a sexual nature or it is about Like you said before, with her bringing Sylvia in front of her kids, it is about humiliation. Wow. I truly think personally that this was a sadistic woman, whether she was born that way or made into be this way after years of abuse, being triggered by Sylvia, whatever the case was, her motive and what she seemed to take great satisfaction was, was humiliating Sylvia. And this would certainly play into it. In fact, many current day psychologists who look at her case will speculate that her driving force was jealousy and sadism. Sadism often very much includes forms of humiliation. On October 21st, 1965, Gertrude brought Sylvia up from the basement and tied her to a bed. She told Sylvia if she didn't wet the bed throughout the night, she'd be allowed to sleep upstairs again. I want to pause here and remind you that Sylvia was not capable of holding in her urine. Not only was she wounded from the initial Coke bottle incident, but at this point she's incredibly weak, she's malnourished, she's been beaten and refused water and food, and I can only imagine, especially after we went through that little sidebar Mm -hmm. of the weirdest extremes, what havoc her internal organs are probably in at this time. Because this, again, started escalating in August. It is now October, near the end of October. So why this may outwardly seem like a rare moment of kindness or remorse even, Gertrude was probably very well aware of Sylvia's inability to make it through the night without wetting herself. So in my personal opinion, this was just creating another excuse for Gertrude to punish Sylvia. The next morning, as we all could have predicted, Gertrude included, I'm sure, Sylvia had wet the bed. She was dressed for the first time in a very long time, but only for the sake of, again, sexually humiliating her. Gertrude forced Sylvia to perform a striptease for neighborhood boys and her sons. I want to remind you, her sons are the age 12 and 8, which I think we can all very much agree that while this family is participating in some 
violent, horrible acts. Having someone do a strip tease in front of a 12-year-old and 8-year-old is child abuse in and of itself. So when you asked if I thought that Gertrude abused her children, maybe not in the sense that we were talking about at the time, but my answer would 100% be yes, because this is 100% abuse. An eight-year-old should not be watching this. No, whenever you say their ages, it's hard to imagine an eight-year-old and 12-year-old doing this horrible torture. And then Sylvia's only 16. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into details, but again, she made her perform sexual acts with a glass bottle. And here's my thought. For someone who is so freaking concerned with purity and chasteness and cleanliness, she is the ultimate hypocrite. She is forcing not only Sylvia, but her own children into participating in sex acts as a form of punishment. What? It doesn't make sense. She needs, she craves that control. And I think all her other feelings toward cleanliness goes out the door whenever she has that, like, I'm controlling the situation. I'm in power. And it's also whenever you combine that with the jealousy, I think it's just a tornado of like, who knows what's about to happen. After this ended, Gertrude told Sylvia to dress. And then, for some unknown reason, again, completely unprovoked, lost her absolute ever-living mind and brought up the lies Sylvia and Jenny had said about her daughters months ago, even though, again, Gertrude, a grown-ass adult, also made up countless, even more lies about Sylvia and said, you have branded my daughters and now I will brand you. Oh, boy. We're talking about the word brand in two very different contexts here. So she's referring to the fact that Sylvia and Jenny's lies branded them in the public eye. What she's talking about in regards to Sylvia and branding her is how we think of cattle brands. Like a stamp, a hot, fiery stamp, usually with an initial of a farmer's family so people can identify or a number, something like that. And to say that I wish it was that quick for Sylvia, I I wish it was a cattle brand. She had her daughter heat up a sewing needle with matches until the needle was orange, then stripped, tied down, and gagged Sylvia while Gertrude carved the letter I and a partial letter M into her abdomen. I listened to an interview with Ricky Hobbs where he was asked about this torture, and he said that Gertrude got tired and told him to do... Oh, I hate this. Gertrude got tired and told him to continue carving out the phrase, I'm a prostitute, I'm proud of it, into her stomach. He remembered in the interview that, again, at age 14, he didn't even know how to spell prostitute. So Gertrude etched on her with a pin, and then he went over it with the hot needle. The cuts and third-degree burns were thought to be so dramatic that even modern plastic surgery wouldn't have been able to correct it. Sorry, I'm getting upset. Oh, my gosh. I hate this case. Okay. While Sylvia was still nude, gagged, and tied, Ricky, Paula, and Shirley, 10 years old, decided to give her another tattoo. They put an S in the middle of her chest. Later, they would give opposing stories as to whether the S stood for Sylvia or for slave, but I think we both know which story rings a little bit more likely. Ricky Hobbs began the tattoo, but then ordered Sylvia's sister to carve the top half. Jenny obviously refused, but she was, that means, in the room, a witness to this torture of her sister. Which is when Shirley, again, 10 years old, continued the tattoo, 
but accidentally carved the upper curve backwards, creating a three instead of an S on her chest. I only wanted to point this out in case anyone does see the movie or pictures from this case and are confused as to what the letter three stood for. Well, it was intended to be an S, but clearly when you have a 10-year-old doing obscene torture like this of someone, they might make a mistake on their alphabet letters. That is so awful. Gertrude then returned to the room and is remembered as saying to Sylvia, What are you going to do now, Sylvia? You can't get married now. You can't undress in front of anyone. What are you going to do now? I think this goes back to the theory that she was actively taking away or thought she was taking away someone else's beauty and chance of happiness, almost as she had seen her own be taken by the men who married her, abused her, and left her with no prospects for a future beyond poverty. Sylvia was then ungagged and answered Gertrude, saying, I guess there's nothing I can do. It's on there. The fact that she was even able to respond, the amount of pain this girl had gone up to into this point, and then is put through this incredibly slow, painful experience, how she is not unconscious or in shock. I don't know what's, there's not one that's worse or better, but like the physical abuse and the psychological abuse is unlike anything I've ever heard or like any case we've ever even read or watched. Like, this is just insane. It is insane. And it it's hard for me, too, because not only are we covering the torture of an innocent child, but the just demolishing of the brains of all of these other children that were involved at the hands of Gertrude. Because up until this point, there's no record of these kids doing violent acts. Sylvia, again, suffered horrible beatings at the hands of Ricky Hubbard that evening. Late in the night, Jenny snuck down to check in on her sister. It was then that Sylvia told Jenny, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can just tell it. Unfortunately, I think Gertrude would also could tell that Sylvia was not capable of receiving much more of this torture and surviving it. Because on October 23rd, after letting Sylvia finally sleep on a bed throughout the night, Gertrude and Stephanie took her into the bathroom and gave her a warm bath, not like the torture baths of before, but a normal bath. Then Gertrude dictated a letter to Sylvia that she had to copy down. The letter read, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Likens, which, hello, that's your first clue. I don't think any little girl who likes her parents is writing their formal names at the beginning of a letter. I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me if I would give them something. So I got in the car, and they all got what they wanted. And when they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach. I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I could do to make Miss Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I have also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck with all of her kids. For some reason, and thankfully so, because this stood out to investigators as well, she didn't have Sylvia sign it. And if she had, who knows, maybe they would have believed this bullshit letter to some degree. But it was almost the opening and closing of this letter that just showed police that this is absolute fabricated nonsense. Once Sylvia finished dictating the letter, she overheard Gertrude talking to her son John about disposing of Sylvia in a nearby garbage dump and leaving her there to die. Sylvia mustered up whatever strength she had left in her frail body and bolted for the door. 
Unfortunately, because she was in such bad condition at this point, she barely reached the front door when Gertrude caught up with her and dragged her back into the home. She took down a curtain rod that she removed from the window and beat Sylvia until the rod, the metal rod, bent. Then Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, hit her one last time, knocking her unconscious. I think we have covered enough about the horrible torture of Sylvia, but I will just say her last few days were no better than anything I've described up to this point. Her condition continued to worsen to the point it is thought she probably was not able to form long sentences, really have full mobility or control over her limbs. And after being sprayed down by a laughing John Jr. with a garden hose in an attempt to wash her, Sylvia again tried to make an escape but collapsed before she could even reach the base of the stairs. Unfortunately, this would be the last time she ever got a chance. She was punished severely for this attempted escape by Gertrude. It's important to Annie and I that we fact-check our cases. In fact, when we started off this podcast, it was kind of a rule between us that unless it's a court document or something of like a legal standpoint that we need to find information in multiple sources. Right, Annie? Yes. So I need to point out that there is a lot of mixed stories about Sylvia's last day. I don't trust anyone in that hell house besides Jenny. So I am only including the information that I could find listed in multiple sources, but I do want to point out who knows for sure. But this is what I could confirm in different sources. Shortly after 5.30 p.m. on October 26, 1965, Ricky Hobbs entered the basement. He saw Stephanie crying and holding Sylvia's frail and beaten body. Stephanie had been ordered to clean Sylvia, so with the help of Ricky, she brought her upstairs and they proceeded to give her a bath. It was not long after the bath, or even perhaps during this bath, that they realized Sylvia had stopped breathing. It's believed that Stephanie was the one to perform mouth-to-mouth in an attempt to resuscitate her, but in that same interview with Ricky Hobbs, he said he performed mouth-to-mouth for around 10 minutes. Again, I'm not one to really put a whole lot of stake into what Ricky has to say. The fact that Stephanie was maybe crying and seemed remorseful, I'm just a little bit more inclined to believe her. During this, it's reported that Gertrude repeatedly shouted to her children that Sylvia was faking her own death. She hit her repeatedly with a book while either Stephanie or Ricky were performing mouth-to-mouth on this girl in an attempt to wake Sylvia up and prove to the children that she was just faking. Ricky Hobbs then, and this is accurate, he was the one that went to the nearest payphone as Gertrude did not have a phone in her home to call the police. Police arrived around 6.30 p.m. and Gertrude led them to Sylvia lying on a soiled mattress in the bedroom. She had also handed them the letter that she had Sylvia write, saying that she had been trying to doctor Sylvia for over an hour before she died. She told police that Sylvia had run away from home with several teenage boys and returned to her home, beaten, unclothed, and clutching that note. At first, based on instruction from Gertrude, even Jenny went along with the rehearsed story about Sylvia being a runaway, who had turned to sex work, but once she had a chance— She bravely whispered to a police officer, get me out of here and I will tell you everything. The autopsy of Sylvia's body revealed she had suffered over 150 separate wounds across her entire body and was very, very malnourished. These wounds varied in size, severity, and stage of healing. They included burns, 
remember from the cigarettes and God knows what else, severe bruising and extensive muscle and nerve damage. Her vaginal cavity was almost swollen shut. Again, I want to point out that the doctors did say her hymen was still intact, so they believe she was not vaginally penetrated, but it was more from these sex acts performed with a, a glass bottle that did this. All of Sylvia's fingernails, oh, this part. I have a weird thing about teeth and fingernails. All of Sylvia's fingernails were broken backwards, and most of the external layers of skin upon her face, breast, neck, right knee were all peeled back or receded. Prior to her death, lichens had eventually bitten through her lips, partially severing sections of them completely from her face. I do not enjoy reading stuff like that, but I think, like I've said before, to understand the severity of this and how many people, by ignoring what was going on, allowed this to happen to her, I think it's important to understand how bad this really was. That's what makes me so freaking angry is she had teachers who could have said something principal could have said something pe teacher so many people even the neighborhood kids i mean come on you guys i know you're young and vulnerable but like it just makes me pull my hair out the official cause of sylvia's death was listed by coroner dr arthur keeble as a subdural hematoma due to receiving a severe blow to her right temple when and what time right which one which blow. And I'm not putting him down for this, but I'm just talking about how much this girl endured. Uh-huh. Both the shock she had primarily suffered due to the severe and prolonged damage inflicted to her skin and subcutaneous tissues, plus the severe malnutrition, were listed as contributing factors to her death. Rigor mortis had fully developed at the time of the discovery of the body, indicating that Sylvia may have been deceased for up to eight hours, which is why we question the story of that day. However, Dr. Keeble did note that because Sylvia did show signs that she was recently bathed, possibly after death, that this act of bathing her could have hastened the loss of body temperature and sped up rigor mortis. Plus, she at this point had very little body fat, so she might have cooled a little quicker than what they would expect to see in a body at this point. Gertrude, 37, Paula, 18, John Jr., 13, Ricky Hubbs, 15, and Coy Hubbard, 15, were arrested and charged with first-degree murder. During the trial, Gertrude and her attorney literally tried to blame everything on her children. And I don't think anyone is at this point shocked by the low of this woman, but she is trying to sacrifice her children now to the legal system, going, I don't remember. I was so ill. I was so weak. I was in bed. They did this. She is a monster. I tried to stop it. She is the worst type of monster. So this is not shocking. What is shocking, however, and something I didn't talk about in this case because I don't know the importance, but I found it quite ironic, is that while Gertrude has been accusing Sylvia of being a prostitute and sleeping around, her daughter Paula was actually pregnant at the time of the trial with a married man's baby. She had been very pregnant during most of this abuse and subsequent trial, and would actually give birth during the trial to a daughter named Gertrude. Oh my gosh, the cycle. The fact that she was pregnant and was like still beating up on this girl is, it just makes me think that I don't even want to know what happened with her life later on because like this story is not about her, but that's horrible. 
On May 19, 1966, after deliberating for just eight hours, the panel of eight men and four women in the jury found Gertrude guilty of first-degree murder. Paula B. was found guilty of second-degree murder, and Hobbs, Hubbard, and John were found guilty of manslaughter, most likely due to their ages at the time. Upon hearing the verdict, Gertrude and her children burst into tears and attempted to console each other as they left the courtroom. Gertrude and Paula were formally sentenced to life imprisonment. Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Jr. each received sentences of 2 to 21 years, which is kind of a big span, Uh if you ask me, to be served in the Indiana Reformatory, which again, they were juveniles. Unfortunately, because of the publicity around this case, the judges, any just prepare yourself to get even more oh, mad no. if that's possible. The judge at the time refused to have the trials be separate. So he tried everyone together except for Stephanie because she actually flipped on her family and chose to be a witness. So everyone else was tried all at one time. This was a media frenzy when people found out what was going on. Oh, I can only and imagine. He- yeah, he wanted over and done with. There was actually I went through newspaper clippings, and this I just kind of found interesting how we are to some level obsessed with the macabre. Two women actually got in a scuffle at the courthouse because they were fighting over seats to actually witness this trial. It's very weird. Anyway, the judge refused to move the trial. He wanted this over and done with, which I'm sure most people at the time agreed with. However. That obviously severely impacted if this was a fair trial or not. And so they won their right to a mistrial. Paula chose to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter instead of going back to another trial, but Gertrude chose to take her chances and was again convicted of a first-degree murder charge. So Gertrude's in jail. Please tell me forever. Wouldn't that be nice? She became a model prisoner, even getting the nickname from other inmates of mom. She took young inmates under her wing. She said she became a devout Christian and was kind of proselytizing to the other inmates. And despite tons of outrage from the citizens of Indiana, Gertrude was paroled for good behavior December 4th in 1985. She never took full responsibility for what she had done to Sylvia, saying upon her release, I'm not sure what role I had in Sylvia Lichen's death because I was on drugs. I never really knew her. I take full responsibility for whatever happened to Sylvia. Okay, hang on. I'm getting my dates kind of confused. So how long did she actually serve? I'm not that great in math either. (laughs) She only served 20 Years from the time of her arrest, where she was held without bond because they counted that towards her sentence, to when she was released for good Uh -uh. behavior. That's bullshit. And the only type of karmic goodness that comes from this, she was a chain smoker. Kids don't smoke. She did die just a few years later from lung cancer. And to that, I say good freaking riddance. Paula, even though she tried to escape jail, which means, you know, no parole for you, Paula. Like, you can't just go escape in jail. And then we're like, but you're such a good girl. It's fine. She also was paroled in 1972. She only served seven years. She, like her mom, changed her name and moved to a small town in Iowa. But 
she was quickly found out. I shouldn't say quickly. It was quite a good amount of years before she was found out when a tip came into a school system that they had a convicted murderer on their staff when she was working under an alias name as a teacher's aide. That's terrifying. Like the fact that she was around kids. I don't want this woman around any child ever. Me as an adult. No, I don't want, yeah, I don't want her around me either. I don't don't want her around my dogs. I don't want her down the street. She should have died in jail. Holy shit. That is insane that she was a school aide under a fake name. Uh, It was a legal name. They legally allowed these terrible people to change their name to hide their identity because of the media coverage, which to that I say, I'm sorry, you do the time, you pay or whatever that phrase is. What is that phrase, Annie? You do the crime, you take the time. (laughs) That was Something along those lines. But part of that should be you have to suffer the like moral and community consequences. Now, I understand there's exceptions, but in this specific case, if you're going to let these heathens out of jail, absolutely, you do not get to start a new name and be like, "Mm, we're back to life as normal. Nope. Anyway, she was promptly fired and whatever. Goodbye, Paula. Stephanie never served time for her participation in the crimes, probably because she did testify against her mother. She also changed her name and went on to have a family, and not much is known about her now. Here's where your blood is going to boil some more. John would only serve two years. He, too, changed his name and apparently at some point had a religious epiphany. He became a lay minister. I had to look up what that meant. Just means generally someone that didn't have to go to all of the normal schooling that a minister would have because they're working in a small community. I will give him credit. He's the only one I'm going to give credit to besides the infant that didn't take part in any of this and like, oh, so sorry. But John was the only one who has spoken out and in fact spoken out on numerous occasions about his remorse, about how terrible these crimes were, spoken out against his mother. He went on to have a family before he died of cancer in 2005 at the age of 52. Marie, who was 11, and Shirley, who was 10 at the time, never served any time for their crimes. The two youngest children also did not serve time. This makes sense. James, eight at the time of the crimes, was not even called to testify, and very, very little is known about him. In fact, in all of my research, he never came up even as a background character. Who's to say if he was or was not involved? But I don't know. An eight-year-old, that's that's a... I know what you're saying. Like, they're almost... He's almost too young to, like, really put blame on, but also we know who his mother was, so... Gertrude's youngest child, Dennis, was an infant at the time, so... Golf clap. Good job, Dennis. You are the only one that is completely out of this scot-free. He was put into the foster system and adopted, but unfortunately he did die later in 2012. It seems like he had a pretty okay life out in California with his adoptive parents. Coy Hubbard, Stephanie's boyfriend, only served two years. This is the guy that pushed Sylvia down the steps, rendered her unconscious with a curtain rod, amongst many other things, and practiced karate on his living punching bag, Sylvia. He actually went on to get tried for another murder in 1982. Oh. And I don't know the details around it, but he was acquitted, so I'm not going to speculate. But I just found it an interesting point. He also reportedly lost his job in 2007 when the movie An American Crime about the Sylvia Likens case debuted. Because... 
they did not change names in that movie. In fact, I watched the movie last night. You guys can watch it for free on Tubi, I think it's called. Ellen Page plays Sylvia. It is a very hard watch. But when this came out, because he stayed in Indiana, people recognized that name. And he didn't change his name like the others. He did not change his name like the others. Interesting. Very interesting. And he stayed in the same area. Well, he lost his job. And then he died in June of that same year. Ricky or Richard Hobbs also only served two years. He was released but would die of lung cancer only a few years later at the age of 21. Wow. Which how many cigarettes are you smoking Ooh. to die at the age of 21 from lung cancer? That is wild. Mm-hmm. So what now? Why did I even want to talk? I, sh- I, sh- I need to rephrase that. I didn't want to talk about this case. But this case to me is the epitome of people witnessing or suspecting something was going on and not stepping in to help. Now, let me run down the list of people who were told or were aware of something horrible going on in that home that I haven't mentioned up until this point. Jenny had reached out to her older sister multiple times, who unfortunately initially believed the girls were exaggerating, which we can give her some credit for that. Right. She did, however, when this kept coming up, go to Gertrude's home to check on Sylvia. She was told by Gertrude to go away that her father had explicitly said that Diana was not allowed in the home, and then she threatened to call the cops on her for trespassing if she didn't leave. Diana did not leave. She actually hid out and then tried to wait for Jenny to come outside. To this point, Jenny, who probably was very much threatened by Gertrude, told her, I'm not allowed to talk to you anymore, and ran away from her sister. Diana did call social services because she was immediately alarmed by this behavior. A social worker came to the home, but when Gertrude told her that she had kicked her out of the home for being physically unclean and a prostitute, a terrified and threatened Jenny, who had again been told if she told the social worker anything that she would end up like her sister naked in the basement, told the social worker, yes, Silvio did run away. Now, did the social worker follow up on this? Maybe contact Sylvia's parents, check in on the story, search the home. Keep in mind here, Sylvia's in the freaking basement. No, she went back to her office, case closed, and filed a report that no one needed to do any further follow-ups to that home. I'm stunned. Like, that's literally your job, ma'am. That's literally your job. And I understand it's a different time. They had different access to things. But I think a follow-up or maybe a search of the home would be the very least you could do. Yeah, or saying, we need to find her then if she really did run away. We're going to come back here and, come on, put a little pressure on the family because that's just suspicious. A neighborhood child. Remember Judy? Oh, yeah. Judy's in the corner. We're going to bring her back out. Okay. Come on, Judy. Judy is out of the corner because she did go home that day and told her parents what happened. When Judy told her they were beating and kicking Sylvia, sounds like she kind of left out her part in it. The mother replied, well, that's what happens when someone's being punished, and never reported the incident. There was a local reverend who stopped by as part of a visitation to his church members' homes, and Gertrude gave him a wild tale of why Sylvia was missing, why she wasn't attending church services or school anymore. And there's a lot of conflicting messages about this, interactions that they had with the reverend. But he did 
express during the trial that he was very concerned. But instead of doing anything, he prayed with Gertrude for Sylvia's salvation and left. I already told you about the neighbors actually witnessing on multiple occasions the bruising and beating of Sylvia and never reported it. Lastly, I don't know if these were the same neighbors, but it's stated in the book that Indiana torture slain Sylvia Likens torture and death by John Dean that I mentioned at the top of this episode, that the evening before Sylvia's death, she desperately attempted to alert neighbors by screaming for help and hitting the walls and the basement floor with a spade, basically the metal end of a shovel. One immediate neighbor of the Benizowski's, the B-word house of hell, would later inform police that she had heard the desperate commotion and that she had identified the source as emanating from the basement of 3850 East New York Street, the home of these horrible people, but the noise had suddenly ceased at approximately 3 a.m., so she decided to not inform police about the disturbance. So what the frickin' hell? I realize it might seem easier in your mind to mind your business, to not assume things. We want to think the best of people, but I hope in me telling you this case and the severity of what happened to this poor girl is a reminder not only to each other, but to our listeners that if you see something, if you hear something, you have to report it. I realize also we live in a time where there's a lot of mistrust in our judicial system, in our child advocacy programs, and quite frankly, in the police force. But you cannot use any of those as an excuse to not get involved when there's an innocent child that you suspect is being hurt or is in an abusive home. This really gets me fired up because I'm going to leave you with some statistics that I hope really resonate with our listeners. And then I want to end this on the positive impact Sylvia's story has made in the laws around child abuse reporting. According to childhelp.org, every year more than 4 million referrals are made to children protection agencies involving more than 4.3 million children. A referral, just so you know if those numbers seem off to you, can obviously they could be a multi-child home. The United States has one of the worst records among industrialized nations. In 2019, state agencies identified an estimated 1,840 children who died as a result of abuse and neglect. That is an average of five children a day dying in our country that are reported I can't imagine how many more aren't at the hands of an abuser. This is reminding me of the Gabriel Fernandez case. It mm-hmm. happens more than what we think. So like Elise said, if you think or see anything just for your own peace of mind and for a kid who is, doesn't have a voice yet, please say something. More than 70% of the children who died as a result of child abuse or neglect were three years of age or younger. Around 80% of those fatalities involve at least one parent as the perpetrator. Those are numbers that I don't think any of us should be comfortable with or numbers that we want to see continued as a statistic for this country. So like Annie said, please, more needs to be done. Sylvia's case also pushed Indiana's legislator to go further with mandatory reporting laws. When the federal government pushed states to define who mandatory reporters of child abuse should be, most states went with professionals like physicians, teachers, psychologists, childcare workers, things of that nature. But Indiana, because of Sylvia's case, quickly decided that everyone is a mandatory reporter of child abuse, which still stands today as a law in Indiana. 
anyone who suspects child abuse, regardless of their age or profession, must make a report in Indiana to law enforcement. There are penalties, including jail time, for failure to report. I personally would like to see this in all 50 states. Absolutely. In 2016, the Boone County CAC, which stands for Child Advocacy Center, in Lebanon, Indiana, where if you remember, Sylvia spent most of her life, was renamed Sylvia's CAC. You can learn more about Sylvia's CAC by going to their website at www.sylviascac.org, where they have written this. Sylvia's tragic death shocked an entire state and a community into recognizing the horrors of child abuse in a way no case had before or since. Sylvia's CAC is named in her honor. We work every day to remember her name, honor her life, and protect children in Boone County from the same anguish and torture that Sylvia endured. If you are ever suspect that there's a child in danger, we're going to end this by saying please call or text the Child Help National Child Abuse Hotline. They are open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Their number is 1-800-4-A-CHILD. Again, that number is 1-800-4-A-CHILD. If you suspect absolutely anything, please report it so that this is the last time I have to cover a case like this.